and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivett Karnak. Uh, uh, my, 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 name's, my name's Paul Dickinson. Where's Christiana? Where's Christiana? <laughs> You're lost without your cue, Paul. Wait, I'm not lost. I'm just saying, where is she? I mean, I'm a little lost. Christiana is sadly away, so we're going to have to carry on and do the best we can. Home alone. Okay, let's see how we get on. It's rather exciting, but very sad. <laughs> So, this week, we talk about the recent UN Emissions Gap Report that reveals just how far we have to go. And we also bring you an interview that Christiana did with her successor at the UNFCCC Executive Secretary, Patricia Espinoza. Thanks for being here. So, Paul, just you and me, home alone, what are we going to do? Well, let's take on the most desperate challenge of our time, which is essentially this report, Tom, right? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's outrage and there's optimism and then there's, you know, <laughs> extremely depressing UN reports. Against a high bar of challenging UN reports, this one cuts through as even more challenging. So um, let's just sort of dig into a couple of the, the details around it. I mean, the headline that really caught me, I don't know about you, is that in order to meet the 1.5 target, countries are going to have to increase their level of ambition fivefold. And right now, we're not seeing that level of commitment. Um, so at the moment, what they're saying is that the richer countries have completely failed to cut emissions quickly enough. 15 of the 20 wealthiest countries on Earth have no timeline for net zero emissions. Um, and the findings are, are pretty bleak. Um, so far, we've not only um, failed to start reducing emissions in line with the science, we've failed to start reducing emissions at all. The emissions are still going up by 1.5% a year. And as a result, the annual reduction in emissions now has to be over 7% uh, if we are to get to where we need to go. So what do you think, Paul? Are we going to do it? Well, thanks for that, you know, loaded <laughs> question. You had a kind of slight sort of smirk, you know, like when, when somebody sort of throws something to somebody and the, the person who's about to catch it doesn't really quite know what it is and is a little bit worried about what it is. And we're, we're, we're laughing and it is kind of funny. Um, it's also absolutely catastrophic for our planet. And yeah. you and I are smiling and a little bit giggly because we're both nervous about the fundamentally, you know, catastrophic character of this. Um, I find myself actually, you know, often, um, as many of us do, probably, I mean, um, practically everyone listening to this podcast does, kind of torn between uh, reality and how it makes you feel. Um, mm. Now, the good news is that this is a global emergency. The world is waking up. Uh, maybe 10% of, uh, of GDP is now being spent on climate change. If it rises to 20 or 30% of GDP, we're going to be fine. But there's this sinking feeling in us that we're not going to make it. And I think the question, um, somebody asked me just a minute ago, um, you know, are we in, you know, is it the, kind of the end of the world, Paul? And I said, you tell me what year. Because I could talk to you about 2050 and I could talk to you about 2100. People don't talk so much about 2150 or 2200 or 2250. But, you know, I listened to Mozart and Bach in the morning on the radio and, you know, they, they weren't living, you know, they were living three, 400 years ago and they're with us today. We can't pretend that 200 years away doesn't exist. And as soon as you accept that 200 years in the future exists and, you know, your children, Tom, are going to be, you know, their children are going to be alive then, we, we, 
this enormous sense of responsibility must wash over us like a tsunami and something has to happen. It's a really interesting point, actually. You're right, because I think that, um, you know, there's been a received wisdom that has emerged from people who are trying to get the world to pay attention to this that sort of says, well, we need to talk about things that are, you know, understandable, you know, in a relatively short time frame in the future, we might experience them, otherwise people kind of don't care. But there's also, you know, there is something empowering about thinking really long term and thinking about your actions being suffused with a kind of meaning um, because of the fact that how we behave today has such an impact on the future. I mean, when you put it in those terms, you really realize just, um, you know, how frightening it really is, the outcomes of this report, and, and, the, and the weight of responsibility or the opportunity to have an impact that um, lies with all of us who are here now at this fulcrum, this moment of such impact. Um, and, you know, I mean, not only is our generation at that moment, but the next 18 months are kind of like that in, in microcosm, right? I mean, if we, we've left it so late now that we need to be successful in each of these gates, and a really big one is the next, I suppose, 15 months leading up to the climate negotiations in Glasgow next year. And I, I hope and believe that the world is going to come together in an unprecedented way. It does feel to me like a huge change of gear. You know, things have gone before and they've been important, but there is so much positive news now in some regards, notwithstanding the US position, um, that we can be very, very optimistic. But um, just, just thinking about how humans protect themselves, you know, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Um, we do put, you know, best part of 2% of GDP into defense. Uh, we remember hundreds, you know, thousands of years of military conflict, invasions, uh, and, and we're quite accustomed now to the fact that we must protect ourselves by in the government, the state investing uh, in, in, uh, in defending us against these, these, these terrible risks. Okay, it's a different kind of risk, but it's exactly the same principle. And if you look at that heritage, you know, the military love to look back 50 years, 100 years. They love their heritage. We have to honor that sort of time responsibility and think about protecting and defending the future generations. And then at that point, you know, we, we, we start to recognize our duty to unite countries behind things like carbon taxes, prices for carbon that will drive down emissions and solve these problems. But currently, the inability of governments to pass laws to protect the people is the crux of the whole war. Yeah. Well, one of the people sitting in the, the very hot seat to have responsibility for humanity actually achieving that is Executive Secretary Patricia Espinosa. And... You know, I cannot tell you how much I admire the UNFCCC, and they are the heroes of the moment. Um, you know, the United Nations is an invitation. It actually has a beautiful outcome baked into its name. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, I always thought that I have always admired the UN. Can I just ask you a personal question, Tom? You've actually worked at the UNFCCC, and I, you know, I just wondered if you had a, a, a sense uh, for, for our listeners of of, of that organisation and, and and what was what moved you about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert and I think you can spend your whole life working there and there's still more to learn, right? It's a very complicated entity. Um, but I sort of had maybe an unusual perspective in that I went in as something of an outsider to the UN. So I went in, um, you know, uh, to work with Christiana um, to try to help do some specific things around ambition. So I wasn't kind of plugged into the UN system like somebody who is a permanent member of staff, but I had kind of an observational seat there. And I have to say, I found it really inspiring. It was probably, you know, a couple of the most satisfying professional years of my life. I mean, the, the people who occupy that institution, and it's the Framework Convention on Climate Change that I know better, uh, based in Bonn, than any of the rest of it, you know, arguably they are there to make the international alignment of countries work, 
right? You can have at a high level an intention to do something together. But for that to work, there is endless amounts of detail around implementation, around personalities, around how these different things come together. And the UNFCCC kind of plays this role, which is kind of slightly invisible to many people. They sort of make things work properly. They smooth the road towards agreement. They understand an incredible amount about the complexity of what that takes. And they they sort of facilitate that process very beautifully and very impressively across a huge number of very complex issues. And I don't know, I just sort of being up close, seeing the amount of time and care and attention that that takes um, was really, really impressive. And I think it speaks to some of the outcomes. And, you know, you can criticize it and say, well, it's all talk and it, you know, it takes a long time to get anywhere. You do need a lot of talk and it is complicated and it is hard to get somewhere, but thank God they're doing it because without that, you know, we'd be nowhere. So um, I think it's uh, it was a great experience being there. Um, and, you know, Patricia came in uh, post-Christiana and I think really has done a great job of turning the whole organization towards what is now important, which is how do we implement and move faster. And it's a very exciting time because they're just at the last minute changed where the cop's being held to Spain. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. let's hear from the leader of the US and FCCC, Patricia Espinosa. And we should just say, so this interview was recorded a few days ago before Cristiano went away. So obviously the COP is starting in a couple of days. For, for Glasgow next year to be successful, this is what lays the groundwork. And, um, you know, that was true of the COP in Lima before the one in Paris, equally important in many ways. And Cristiano and Patricia kind of take you into the world of that negotiation. So they kind of go into, you know, what's happening, what's required, where do we go? So as a way of getting up to speed with understanding of what's now needed, I think it's an amazing um, interview and I hope you enjoy it. Great, let's listen. Patricia Espinosa, thank you so much for joining us today on Outrage and Optimism. Um, I would like to start, Patricia, since I have been uh, I have been in your very difficult shoes in the past. I actually thought we should both start by thanking the government of Spain. I think that they have been incredibly courageous, very generous in recognizing that Chile had really an unsustainable problem on their hands. And uh, and really to be willing to take up the the seat of the COP just with three or four, well, four weeks, I think, um, in advance, to very courageous to keep the dates and uh, and move the venue. I, I really think that they deserve a huge, huge recognition and gratitude from all of us. I, I would love to know from from you where things stand. Um, those who have been to COPS realize how difficult all of the logistics is in addition to the political that we will speak about soon. But the logistical arrangements are incredibly difficult. And so we'd just love to know just before the COP starts uh, from you, your assessment of where we stand on the logistical arrangements, on what effect has that had on broad participation. Thank you, Christiana, and thank you, first of all, for the invitation to join your program, and thank you also for all your hard work uh, on this agenda around the world. You continue to make a very significant contribution to our pro process and to the progress in uh, addressing climate change. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. We need to thank the government of Spain for having reacted literally in hours after the government of Chile took the very difficult decision 
to not host the conference given the situation that the country is facing. So Spain came forward uh, initially with uh, questions, but then very, very soon with a formal offer, a formal proposal to make it happen. And uh, the effort that the Spanish government uh, working together with us and, and Chile as a presidency of the conference have been making uh, in the last uh, weeks is just amazing. As you say, very well say, Cristiana, we know very well how much uh, work and how much uh, of a logistic uh, challenge uh, a conference of this size is. And I can only say that I, I am full of gratitude and admiration for the capacity of, of the government, the way that everybody uh, there have come forward, are dedicated to making this conference not only happen, but make the conference a great success. We were actually very uh, lucky because uh, Madrid has a very big fair facility that was uh, partially free. And that is what allowed this, um, what opened this possibility of moving the venue to Madrid in such a short amount of time because we did not need to uh, build temporary structures. Uh, the structure is already there. So uh, the, the challenge still is very big because it means, of course, adapting those spaces to the needs of the conference. I can confirm that altogether we are able to host basically the same program that was already foreseen for Santiago. So we are, yes, deeply grateful for Spain and Chile that have been working in this true spirit of multilateralism and that are allowing us uh, to quickly move the venue and keep the original dates. Well, um, I'm I'm very glad, um, Patricia, that it has really worked out like that. And and for our listeners, I think we should also remind them that not only did um, Spain step in very quickly, but they were also in the middle of an election. So um, so even Correct. more even more gratitude uh, to them for having been so courageous. Patricia, do you have um, do you have the sense of what, in particular, developing countries and non-party stakeholders, how they have been able to change their plans, change flights, change hotel reservations, all of that that has a huge effect on participation. Do you have a, a sense on how flexible that has been? Well, it, it has been a challenge, of course. But uh, again, here I would say we have been very fortunate to have the the support on the one side of the Chilean government in order to uh, try to help um, delegations uh, recover uh, at least part of their expenditures that they had made for hotels in Santiago. Um, that has been uh, really very much welcomed. Uh, but of course, everybody understands this is a, an unforeseeable situation, a force majeure, uh, and therefore, well, some uh, costs need to be uh, uh, need, need to be absorbed. Uh, on the side of the airline tickets, also, um, Chile has made efforts with airlines in order to try to appeal to them uh, to. Um, 
to reimburse the tickets. Um, this was uh, accepted immediately by Lan Chile, uh, you know, who is, uh, that is the, the airline from Chile. And that was actually an airline that many, many participants were uh, using in order to get to Santiago. Wow. Uh, I think that uh, in Spain, also in Madrid, uh, we are fortunate because there is really an amazing offer of uh, hotel rooms and accommodation possibilities for people. Uh, people were very worried about the prices. Um, I have been participating in many discussions with the bureau members uh, on these issues, and I have the impression that so far uh, the needs have been have been covered. Um, the other complicated issue, a uh, logistical issue, uh, is um, the granting of visas. And uh, there also Spain uh, made a very, very quick moves in order to uh, alert their embassies and consulates around the world and also work with other uh, uh, Schengen uh, countries uh, in those places where they do not have a representation. So I think we are in a, in a good situation given the, uh, the short time that we have had to, um, to organize this move. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing those details, Patricia. I think it's it's difficult for people who are not in this system to understand how important the logistics are. And when the logistics don't work, the negotiations cannot move forward. So, uh, so, so, so important. And again, so, so grateful that, um, that Spain was, uh, was really so, so courageous, so generous and so well organized. And as you can imagine, um, uh, Christiana, our team in the Secretariat is really literally working 24 hours, seven Flat days a out. week. Yes, you know. Yes. So um, this there uh, to them also goes a very, very big uh, recognition and uh, a deep expression of gratitude. Well, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And as you and I both well know, you sit and lead right now the best team in the world. Uh, so I, I can only imagine how flat out they are, yes. but, uh, but you and I have full confidence that they can actually uh, pull, this, pull this forward. So yes, thank you, for, um, thank you for reminding us of that incredible job that the Secretariat always does. Um, Patricia, with that, um, with that squared away, could we move then to a conversation that is more of a more political nature? Uh, assuming that everybody has a bed, food, and and travel, uh, and that uh, and and that they have negotiating space, then um, could you walk us through what are the main decisions that are expected for COP twenty five? And also, I would be interested um, if you could say a few words about the link uh, between the SG summit, the summit that the Secretary General had in September in support of COP25. So the main decisions for, for the COP and also um, if you see any concrete contribution from that summit for, uh, for the process. 
Well, uh, first of all, as you remember, uh, there is one outstanding issue uh, for the operationalization of the Paris Agreement, which is Article 6, uh, which relates to uh, international climate markets where nations need to agree on how they will work as a key component of the world's economic toolbox for addressing climate change into the future. Of course, we already know that even having a, a political understanding and a, a good outcome, technical work will need to be uh, continued after this conference. Because, as you know, Christiana, such a, a, a regime uh, regarding carbon uh, markets uh, is not uh, easy to put in place. So uh, we need now to get the political understandings, the basis for, for this framework, and then continue to work on the more technical part. There's also an important issue that will be addressed, very important for many developing countries, especially the most vulnerable, which, which relates to, the, uh, to loss and damage, and particularly how uh, the work uh, under the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage uh, will be related to, to financing. And this, this is a, a very central part of the agenda of how uh, the climate regime can support developing countries in their actions to address uh, this climate emergency. And the third uh, element that I would like to highlight is um, the need to boost ambition. Ambition not only in mitigation, ambition in adaptation, ambition in financing, in uh, general in means of implementation. And um, this is where I think uh, uh, we can benefit enormously from the momentum that was created at the uh, Secretary General's Climate Summit in New York. Because uh, there, what we uh, want to, to show is how much is going on around the world, how many possibilities there are, how many solutions there are already available today that are not only attractive, but also economically sound and economically viable. So um, uh, here we are referring to not only the parties, but also the, the non-party stakeholders that will be coming to Madrid in order to uh, make, make commitments, but also show what they are doing already in order to uh, get us to the transformation that is required uh, if we want to achieve the goals under the Paris Agreement. Uh, the agenda is very large. It includes um, issues such as forests and agriculture, technology and technology transfer. It includes also indigenous peoples and cities, oceans, gender, um, transparency of climate action, all of this is ongoing work. We have to bear in mind this is um, a process that has many, many pieces that are not interrupted. They go on over time and they will go on uh, in, the, in the coming years. And on the um, political side, I am sure you will appreciate that many eyes are on the U.S., 
um, having had that government now confirm what they had said at the very beginning of their administration, that they have started now the process of withdrawal uh, from the from the Paris Agreement, and that they will complete that by November of next year, um, apparently just one day after the U.S. election. So, you know, the universe does have a sense of of humor there. Let's let's see if we can still find the humor by next year. But um, but I would be interested in hearing from you whether you see any political impact of uh, the position of the United States on the position of uh, other countries. Well, you know, um, actually, of course, this has not come as a surprise to anyone because it was it has been um, announced and reiterated uh, since the announcement uh, was made. So it did not come as a surprise to anyone. And uh, every everybody in the process, especially in the negotiations, are very conscious that the U.S. remains a party to the Paris Agreement, as you just mentioned, until next year, uh, and therefore will be participating and continues to participate in the uh, negotiations and they continue to, to participate also well uh, you know it's a very strong delegation uh, in in a constructive uh, manner uh, on the on the other hand uh, also we need to be very mindful that the US remains a party to the convention. That has not been a, a, a point under uh, under discussion. Uh, so uh, the the United States government continues to be an important partner for the process. Um, on the other side, I think that um, uh, we uh, see very encouraging commitments from many uh, subnational authorities, from business in the U.S. Um, and uh, well, we are very, very conscious of uh, the effects of climate change that they are suffering in many parts of the United States. So we as the Secretariat, we remain, of course, open to engage with the U.S. and, and hoping that uh, uh, if this uh, withdrawal becomes a, a reality, that we will uh, hopefully get them back uh, as soon as possible. Um, regarding the impacts on, on other uh, parties, um, fortunately, what we have seen is that even after the announcement of the U.S. about their withdrawal from Paris, uh, we have seen a, really a long, long list of countries coming in and ratifying the Paris Agreement. The latest case has been the Russian Federation, as you know. Uh, so in that regard, uh, I think that um, for the countries around the world, this agenda has become a central agenda, not only in their political agenda, but also in their economic development. Yes, in, in, indeed, indeed. Um, I, I'm actually quite surprised, Patricia, pleasantly surprised that uh, that you continue to collect parties that become, um, th that ratify the Paris Agreement and become parties to the agreement by making it national law. I've actually been pleasantly surprised. And, and, and the last one, as you say, the Russian Federation, and the long, long list of countries that are have announced their withdrawal is currently at one country. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, so that's uh, quite, uh, quite, quite interesting. And as you say, I think it speaks 
for um, political understanding of the threats that we have on climate change. Sadly, I must say, Patricia, it's not always reflected in measures that countries are taking, um, with which I wanted to um, turn our attention here in the conversation beyond COP25, already into 2020 and COP26, because that is when uh, countries need to come together again to review what they have done, what their policies uh, have been able to achieve, where capital markets have shifted, how technology has improved, and be able then, according to the Paris Agreement, they need by next year to actually, let's say, register an upgrade of what they're doing nationally, which is called the Nationally Determined um, Contribution. What is your sense coming out of the SG Summit and looking in already into 2020? What is your sense of the status of those upgrades? Well, um, in the preparations for the SG Summit, uh, um, we at UNFCCC and UNDP, we worked together with Chile, who led a, a, what was called the Mitigation Strategy Coalition, and there uh, we uh, managed to get together um, what uh, Chile launched at the summit, which was this Climate Ambition Alliance, where uh, we put forward the list of countries that indicated their uh, willingness to come forward next year with new NDCs, with uh, upgraded NDCs. And that's a list of 70 countries. Um, I have to say that um, a lot of the, the the bigger emitters, the biggest emitters, were are not yet there in that list. Um, so we're working now uh, with together with Chile, uh, also in order to try to expand that list and get uh, more countries into that list. And this is really uh, in order to get the process going that could allow us next year to get to the COP and have new NDCs presented that would give the sense that we are indeed closing the gap. I cannot uh, say uh, as of now that we are there yet. However, I hope that um, the, the seriousness of the effects of climate change that we are seeing around the world uh, on the one side the mobilization that we are seeing uh, by um, especially youth, but not only youth around the world. And the fact that uh, science tells us that it is possible to achieve these uh, goals uh, will uh, allow us really to make serious progress uh, by next year. And then, of course, going into 2030 and reaching climate neutrality in 2050. Thank you very much, Patricia. I really um, uh, appreciate uh, that you walk us through through that. Um, one last quick question, and then I will let you go because I know that you have a very, very overscheduled day. Um, <laughs> just your expectations from non-state players that have played such an important role uh, in the past and uh, your expectations and hope for what they all will do uh, now this year and moving into 2020. 
Well, you know, on the side of the non non state players, I think we are seeing also very very encouraging and I would say exciting developments. Uh, besides this list of of countries willing to update their NDCs that was launched at the uh, at the summit under the Climate Ambition Alliance, there was also a list of um, uh, of countries and non party stakeholders uh, committing to achieving climate neutrality by 2050 and and there I can I, I can tell you I was pleasantly surprised to see that uh, we managed to get uh, on that list over a hundred cities we managed to get there also around a hundred companies big and small very important companies worldwide global companies and some smaller companies as well from all regions of the world, that was also very, very uh, interesting and important. We managed to get also a list of uh, 12 uh, groups of investors uh, uh, in that list. So I think there we are seeing also a progress, enthusiasm, and at the at, at the end, it's really uh, those who are recognizing that this is the agenda of the future for all of them. If they want to survive, if they want to continue making good business, if they want to continue being relevant, then they need to embrace this agenda and go uh, forward with a very uh, fundamental change. So I'm also encouraged by that. Uh, again, this is not to say we are there, but there is uh, optimism, as you say, uh, in your podcast. And for you, Patricia, on, this, on the spectrum between being outraged about what is not happening and also about the very negative effects that we're feeling from climate change, that's one, one side of the spectrum. And the other spectrum is optimistic about what is happening and what can continue to happen. Where are you on that spectrum? Well, I, I I want to see myself in the optimistic part because I think this is this is our our role in the secretariat. We need to inspire. We need to uh, give guidance. We need to bring people forward, and I think we need to uh, to do that. Uh, really, giving a sense of hope. We need to give hope to the youth. We need to give hope to business people. We need to give hope to politicians. Uh, so I put myself rather in that side. Excellent. Welcome. Wonderful. Wonderful. Patricia Espinosa, thank you for taking time out of a very, very busy schedule. Everyone is with you, supporting you. Uh, and uh, those who will be at COP25 will be able to experience the little miracle that the Secretariat and, uh, and the Spanish government have actually put together. So very, very, uh, very good energies being sent all the way to all of you. Uh, and we are also optimistic about future results. Thank you. Thank you, Cristiana. And thank you for the great work you're doing. Thank you. So, Paul, you um, know a lot about climate change, but you haven't been inside the UN FCCC world of negotiations that much. Um, what did you leave that conversation with? What did you learn from it? Well, I was dazzled at the... Um, the kind of commitment and the energy 
uh, of 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 the secretariat. Um, Patricia particularly saying that the really fast move of the COP to Spain shows how important the world takes the work right. of the UNFCCC, and I thought that was a key point. Um, I was shocked by Christiana pointing out that the list of countries that have announced their withdrawal from Paris is one, and I wonder <laughs> if the the citizens of the United States really appreciate how extraordinarily bizarre the behavior of their government has been to withdraw from uh, the most important global agreement I would say there's ever been. And then finally, just a little personal thing. um, I do think that the faces of Christiana and Patricia and their successors should be carved into Mount Rushmore. You know, I I do think these people, these, 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 these quiet, largely unknown uh, you know, a, a critic would call them bureaucrats, but to me, they're they're true leaders, um, providing that supportive leadership that brings people together, that gets us where we need to go, and is the only antidote, really meaningfully, I think, uh, ultimately to that that terrible UN report that we were talking about at the start of the of the broadcast. Totally, absolutely. Well, um, well, I'm going to Madrid. I'll be there. I'll be there next week on Monday, Tuesday, um, and it's going to be a very important few days. I mean, as you alluded to there, you know, one country has withdrawn. It can't. I can't help but think that next time we all get together for a climate negotiation after this in a year's time, it will be just a few days after the U.S. election, and it will cast uh, either a long shadow or a sense of elation over it. So. Um, We'll have to see where we go. But whatever the outcome is, this one's important and the next one too. Well, enjoy Madrid and uh, bye everybody. Look forward to being with you next week. All right. Thanks for being here. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Outrage and Optimism. If you're listening to this while shopping on Black Friday, I recommend buying a copy of The Future We Choose, which is Tom and Christiana's new book. Pre-orders are available at wechoosethefuture.com. I've put the link in the show notes of this episode, so the book is waiting for you there. All right, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism, and it's produced by Clay Carnell. This episode happened because of Callum Grieve, Fran Newman, Pete Kluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Sherlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And this week's interview with Patricia Espinosa was made possible by John Hay and the communications team at the UNFCCC. A huge thank you to them for that. You can connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Global Optimism, and you can email us directly at podcast at globaloptimism.com. All right, that's everything. COP25 starts on Monday, and we're guaranteed to have some thoughts and updates next Friday. See you then.